Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the demonisation of Mick Lynch, who's got the red tops frothing at the mouth over rail strikes orchestrated by the RMT union, of which he is the general secretary. The Sun has dubbed him Mad Mick. The Daily Mail says Militant Mick earns £124,000 a year despite preaching solidarity with working-class people, while Richard Madeley on Good Morning Britain asked the union boss if he was a Marxist and said he's got his hands on the country's windpipe. That's not to mention a bizarre spat over Thunderbirds with Piers Morgan. We'll be discussing this with Dr Bethany Usher, who wrote a brilliant piece in Byline Times last year about the history of attack journalism. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper in which Bethany and others write wonderful articles. We can report without fear or favour because... We don't have to dance to the tune of a wealthy proprietor. We don't take stories down, even if Downing Street rings and asks us to. Instead, we rely for funding on ordinary readers and listeners taking out subscriptions to the paper. So do please subscribe if you can. You get more details at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you have already taken out a subscription, thank you. Let's hear then from Dr. Bethany Usher, former tabloid journalist, the author of Journalism and Celebrity and Director of Education in the School of Arts and Culture at Newcastle University. Bethany, hi, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, nice to speak to you. So when I go through that list of the attacks on Mick Lynch, is this all sounding very familiar to you? Well, the Mad Mick one is hilarious because that one goes back right to Thomas Paine in the 18th century. I mean, what we have is another another example of when somebody challenges the political norms from the left. And for as long as that has been happening, the press have been, the mainstream press have been reacting to it. So attack journalism, the earliest one I found was about Thomas Paine in, in terms of like, a focused attack across several publications coming at it from different, you know, from different angles working together. But the leaders of it were the Times and they dubbed him Mad Tommy. Um, They said he wasn't a real man. They said he was a thief. They, you know, accused him of criminality, all kinds of things. And it went on and on and on. But what was interesting is a bit like what's going on with uh, Mick Lynch today is, or when a band song gets lots of attention, is actually it made lots of more people buy his pamphlet, right, of man. So it actually had both impacts. It tried to limit him and cast him out from public spheres, but it actually attracted a lot of people to the cause too. And Thomas Paine was doing two things, according to your article. One was that he was challenging the status quo of society, you know, demanding equal rights for all, essentially. But he was also threatening the business model of the traditional papers because he was creating these pamphlets that were not newspapers, that he was selling cheap and providing an an alternative source of information that, that potentially, anyway, threatened their financial well-being. Yeah, I mean, it's this really interesting thing is that we've got this very, a lot of people who think of what the press should be have a very kind of middle class 
bourgeois establishment model of the press, which is, you know, it's about objectivity. It never is. It's a myth. It's about balance and impartiality. It's never been. It's a myth. But as soon as somebody is actually an activist journalist, what I, which I would consider closer to my model of journalism, probably closer to byline in some way that, you know, that challenges the status quo, that, that highlights injustice, that tries to do something about it, then they call them irrational, they call them emotional, they call, you know, it's working class, it becomes very class-based. Thomas Paine, it became very class-based rhetoric. But Thomas Paine did something really interesting with his print because he, he made it, he printed cheaply so that you could buy it, you know, on the streets. An ordinary person could afford it in a way they couldn't afford a mainstream newspaper. Um, but he also wrote in direct language. He wrote in, in a kind of vernacular that we was the beginnings, really, of a kind of more popular version of journalism, a more accessible version of journalism. So he was breaking the business model and their, their power and control over the print and dominance over the print market, too. So, of course, he, from, the, from the establishment press point of view, like the Times, he really did have to be kind of limited in terms of his engagement with them from audiences. But of course, it was also an interesting political time. You know, this is a time of beginning a revolution. People are looking across to the to the channel. Thomas Paine has been involved in supporting the War of Independence too. So of course, they were they were there was all of these extra dimensions that made him seen as one of the biggest threats at the time to to the kind of um, power of the propertyed class. Yeah, so he wrote The Rights of Man. He supported the French Revolution. His cause was adopted in the United States and was kind of one of the cornerstones of the US Revolution. So his ideas, which essentially were about all people being equal and being eligible to have an equal say in society, that threatened the status quo, and and that was sufficient to generate these attacks on him. Yeah, I mean, even people who would have considered themselves moderate reformers in the 18th century, didn't. lots of them didn't believe in universal justice and universal votes. They saw it as kind of, it's against almost, for a lot of them, against the natural order of things, that, that you know, people, the, the place of the poor was righteous to them. It was rightful and righteous. And that they, you know, this idea of kind of being born into a position because that's where you should be. I mean, the, the fascinating thing about Britain to uh, British history and what we learn and what we don't to me is is kind of encapsulated with Thomas Paine. Because if you look at, you know, curricular in France and curricular in America, Thomas Paine is somebody they learn about a lot. He is probably one of the most influential Brits in terms of politics and history and his involvement in helping establish the republics of America and France. Um, You know, he's so important in history and political history and social history. And yet we don't even learn about him in the national curriculum. When I talk to him about, you know, most people, they're kind of like, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't even I hadn't even heard of him. And I just think it's a very interesting thing about how our education system and how our journalism and the things that we don't know about. Um, In journalism, we call it, um, in journalism studies rather, we call it symbolic annihilation, which is that there's not just the attack, but there's also the silence about anything good. 
so that you don't engage with it either. And you see that in manifest in many different ways. You know, um, one of the one of the big um, bodies of research recently has been around people of colour and um, particularly Muslims and the fact that you only ever hear the negative. You never hear the positive about them. Payne was a, a revolutionary, I suppose, in the sense that he argued that if a government doesn't safeguard the rights of its people, then in those circumstances, revolution is permissible, which I guess if you are somebody who is in power, that's a very scary kind of language. But when we bring it up to date, and I'm thinking of my conscious lifetime as a, a political observer, probably starting as a kid in the 70s through to the 80s, figures on the left in particular have attracted the ire of newspapers like The Sun, haven't they? Whether we're talking about Michael Foote, Arthur Scargill, and of course, in their different ways, Foote and Scargill and later Jeremy Corbyn are figures who are contentious in some way. I'm not suggesting that they're without contention around them. But even Ed Miliband came in for this kind of assault, didn't he? Who most people would recognise, certainly by European standards, a kind of moderate, centre-left Labour leader. Yeah, I mean, it was Ed Miliband, the attack on Ed Miliband, that really first started sparking my attention. So my book's Journalism and Celebrity, but really it's about how journalism and celebrity work together to create capitalist democracies as the two media representations of them and how they've already always been intertwined since the 18th century press. There's never been a separation between them. And when I started... I didn't intend to go back as far as the 18th century press, actually. I mean, what I call an accidental media historian, because what I was interested in was I'd left industry. I'd left industry because I didn't like the cultures that I was working in there, particularly around cultures of attack. There was things that I've talked about in the book that as a young reporter I did that I wasn't proud of. I, I didn't like it. So after about two and a half years of being at the Nationals, I quit and found something else to do in my mid-20s. And when I was doing that, it was really around these cultures of attack. And, and as I started the research, my, my research and my PhD really came from me trying to make sense of my experiences that I'd wanted to be a journalist from a very young age. I'd worked super hard as a working class young girl to get nationals by the time I was 22, 23, and then I was miserable there. So it was this me trying to make sense of what had happened to me. And as I was doing this research, I saw this thing on Ed Miliband, and I was like, oh, that feels familiar, that I had been, what I would say, indoctrinated into cultures of attack without my even realising it at first, that it was this newsroom norm. And it was only when I started thinking, hang on a sec, this isn't right here. And so I was watching the Ed Miliband run. I was thinking about some of the, the experiences I'd had in newsrooms. And I just started scrolling back. And I talk about in the conclusion to my book, which is what's to be done? How do we tackle these things? And how do we change codes of regulation to finally take on attack journalism is one thing I talk about. And um, I talk about in my book the, the jarring similarities between Thomas Paine and some, what, 280, 300 years later, my maths isn't that quick, Ed Miliband, that it's the same language, mad, um, red, like, they didn't use red, but lefty. This, and this, even to these really crazy things of like linking masculinity to wearing the trousers, that both of them had these kind of references made to them. 
they both had what I call in my next book, Journalism and Crime, that's coming out next year. They were both rhetorically criminalised. And what I mean by that is that linguistically first and then by direct accusations, the press basically made them out to be criminal. So it's language like mob, mobster, mob. Um, in, in Thomas Paine's um, case, they called him a thief. In Ed Miliband's, quite astonishingly, they said he used slave labour in his home. You know, they, none of this is, is backed up, but it's this, this kind of way, language first and then by accusation of just trying to cast them out from public spheres, to make them beyond the pale so the vast majority of people don't even engage with their arguments. That's the aim. And in Ed Miliband's case as well, that even extended, didn't it, to an attack by proxy through his dead father. That's awful, isn't it? I mean, I remember reading that. And and the thing is, is that people might call post-Marxist, you know, they could call him that. That we There is a body, it's really hard for me when people go, Marxist theory, you use Marxist theory. We, we can't ignore the fact that there's this really important part of political communication and using it does not make you a Marxist or a communist. Using it and applying it to say, oh well this is an example of or that we can think about things different ways being an intellectual that uses philosophies from different sources does not make you a supporter of them and so Miliband's father was a post-Marxist scholar without a shadow of a doubt in that he used theories of means of production and how the press was working to, un- to understand culture, popular culture. He's a famous theorist within, within the fields of cultural communication, really, and history too. But to kind of accuse him of the things that they accused him of, I mean, and, and this man's dead. He can't defend himself. And, you know, as a means to limit engagement with the political ideas of his son, to me, is just really distasteful. I mean... Yeah. Uh, well, it's, I, it's very interesting. It's, it's the same kind of use of language that effectively shuts off debate, doesn't it? If you call somebody a Marxist, that almost by definition for some people is a step beyond which you're not permitted to go and therefore all conversation ends. Miliband was being accused of... As I say, Marxism by proxy, because it was his dad who was a Marxist, if in the, if that's a meaningful term in any event, not Ed Miliband himself. I think he was a Yeah, no, I yeah. mean, like, maybe, you know, that, that I, I don't, I mean, um, if people are Marxists to me, it isn't, the, it isn't beyond the pale to me, that I think that there is room for a wide spectrum of political opinions, providing you are not trying to end democracy or act, get people to commit acts of violence, then I'm willing to give you a hearing. I know that's not very popular at the moment in this kind of black and white toxic political debate, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who likes to look to consensus and common ground and to build from there. That's my, my instinctive political position. So it is, it's a chill of limitation, isn't it? Because where do you move on from that once you start throwing around these terms? It's like me calling a a front bench conservative a fascist. 
Where do you move on from there? How do we look to common ground if we've also already started with these names? Yeah, yeah. Now, the other uh, word that I think is used to kind of close down debate is to call people woke, and particularly on the right. I mean, I've been accused of being woke by people who I've helped with campaigning work, and they've said to me, are you woke? And it's a bit like, well, I don't really know what that means. I know what it's intended to mean when I see it used by tabloid newspapers. Do I believe in fairness and social justice and equality? Yes. If that makes me woke, then I'm happy to subscribe. But growing up for me in Britain in the 70s and 80s, those were kind of normal values that people could subscribe to across the political spectrum, which perhaps highlights the times we're in. But what's interesting about your research is that these are not unprecedented times. You know, these memes, if we can call them that, do keep recurring. And the latest victim of them, it seems to me, is Mick Lynch. Yeah, and we're going to, without a shadow of a doubt, though, that we, in my mind, that over the next 18 months, if Keir Starmer is, I think he will be leader of the um, Labour Party, providing I'm in Durham, so providing my local police don't issue a fine in the next few weeks, I think Keir Starmer will face the next general election. Um, I will expect an attack on him. And what I'm astonished at, really, with the Labour Party sometimes is how, despite it happening to so many Labour leaders and before the Labour movement, anyone who was on the left of centre, really, they still seem utterly unprepared for it every single time that there isn't that awareness of the methodology and what might come and how they might counter the narrative. And then when, you know, when they're in power, they don't do anything around dealing with this, looking to working with press complaints, things working with Ofcom to really look at what we can pragmatically do to limit attack journalism, because we do need to take this head on if we do want to clean up our political discourse. And our journalism, now that's not to say that there won't be massive resistance from some quarters, of course there will be in the press, but I do think that the majority of journalists themselves, if we can if we can have conversations with journalists, and, and certainly I have these conversations with my students, that we don't have to do these things. Like, to a, how do you identify when you are being indoctrinated in the same way as a young reporter? I didn't have the tools to necessarily identify straight away. Yeah, it's so interesting who's in charge of the story. I know that after an interview with Kay Burley on Sky News, there was a suggestion in a tweet when there was a a clip of the interview that Mick Lynch had been flustered when he manifestly wasn't. There was the bizarre episode with Piers Morgan in which he picked on the Thunderbirds avatar used by Mick Lynch on his Twitter stream, bizarre things. There has been praise, I should note, from unexpected quarters for Mick Lynch for his ability to handle some of these deliberately provocative interviews, not least from the Right Wing Spectator magazine, who've written an article in defence of Mick Lynch. But I suppose it underlines the fact that we do have this idea of journalism being objective and independent. In many cases, it represents very powerful financial and political interests. And we can see that with the dropping of the Carrie Johnson story, Carrie Gate, can't we, when a call from Downing Street persuades the Times to drop that particular story. And we can see it played out with the political attitudes 
of The Sun, of The Daily Mail, of The Telegraph. These are not neutral, objective, impartial, independent observers of our scene. Yet when we have programmes like What the Papers Say, they're generally presented as neutral, objective presentations of fact. And they never have been that. I mean, I suppose the good thing is, is that the Downing Street or a prime minister having a word with the Times to pull a story or a story not making the Times is nothing new. I mean, it's been going on since the Times was invented. But um, but what we do have now is greater understanding and knowledge of that. So we've come a bit of a way, you know, the public at least now know or have a have an understanding or it gets out sometimes. Um, I had a bit of a backwards and forwards on Twitter with Piers Morgan about the um, hood, you know, Mick the Hood a certain thing he said, I mean, especially exactly what I expected, make the hood, that's rhetorical criminalization, because it makes him it portrays him as a as a hoodlum, as a criminal. And make the hood um, was based on the Thunderbirds avatar. Yeah. And that's just shows how ridiculous this is. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but, but Mo- I said to Piers Morgan on that, and I talk about Piers Morgan in my book as well, because he's one of the most interesting. If you're looking for somebody who embodies some of the dynamics between journalism and celebrity, look no further than Piers Morgan, particularly in the 21st century and how, how he performs across different platforms and integrates with different politicians and becomes parts of different left and right political motives. Um, he's kind of like a... Um, it's, it's ways, doesn't he, Piers Morgan? He can be kind of lauded as a kind of hero of the press and then be a, a be a villain, depending on your political perspective, almost weekly. And that's part of his journalistic persona. And I said, you know, it's interesting because clearly the clicks on this were more important than the credibility, the journalistic credibility. And he was quite, he said, well, if you're not on Twitter, if you're not on Twitter for clicks, what are you on for? I said, um, well, I'm not on Twitter for clicks. If I was on for clicks, if I was trying to build a profile, I'd have more followers. What I'm on for credibility, and actually is a news feed, I use it as the old school wires, really, is the closest thing that I do with it, is that I use it for information. Well, I think that's really interesting because does, you know, what was that really about with Piers Morgan? Well, really, it was about, he saw that, uh, Mick Lynch was getting some traction on socials by journalists by being an antagonistic, and he thought, I'll have myself some of that to try and get as much attention as possible. Yeah, he likes to pose as this objective, independent arbiter, but really his shape shifting is pretty exploitative, cynical, and opportunist, in my personal opinion. Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell recognise the power of the attack press. I mean, I've been reading Campbell's diaries again recently. They're a fascinating insight into the New Labour project and the coming to power of New Labour. They understood it only too well and effectively gone into bed with it rather than once being in power, seeking to challenge it. Those newspaper groups will complain about infringements of free speech, for example, if any attempt is made to push back on what we're describing as attack journalism, is there a way that we can challenge attack journalism without jeopardising free speech? Well, I think that free speech is 
It's really important. Let me start there. That free speech is fundamental to a democracy. Um, and I have argued for the free speech of people who I find politically abhorrent many times across my life that they have a right to speak. But we do have in codes of practice in journalism rules about harassment. Now, those rules about harassment tend to focus on news gathering, persistent pursuit. So you have to treat people fairly in, in broadcast or in publication, it sometimes says, in, in Ofcom it says fairness, but most of them focus on persistent pursuit, not bothering people over and over and over again is essentially what they deal with. And then what I think is that we have to um, we have to be really clear that you can also harass people through persistent publication, and particularly when that persistent publication is using falsehoods, rumor, or conjecture. Now, so free speech, if you have a fact-based story that is in the public interest, of course, you should be able to write it. But if you are just writing about gossip to do with public figures, that's not, might be, you know, substantiated, unsubstantiated, and that focuses on issues of their class, of their race, of their gender or sex, of their disability, of their identity, it is a form of harassment. And I just don't think that the press should harass people. What penalties should be imposed for those who breach what many people would regard as entirely reasonable guidelines? What I think we need to be doing is getting into newsrooms, getting into places when journalists are and having conversations about them. Because the truth of the matter is, is that these cultures I've worked in them can become really blinkered and toxic where you almost don't see anymore because everybody's kind of behaving in a certain way. It's like a pack mentality. You know, we use that as you know, to, to describe journalists particularly. And so what I'm really interested in is kind of speaking to getting newsrooms to adopt these principles that we're not going to get engage in cultures of attack and to make it just something that journalists think is morally wrong and don't do. And maybe I have to just accept the fact there are some publications that we're never going to get there with. And that what we need to focus on is the other publications that we might. Dr. Bethany Usher, thank you very much indeed. Really fascinating insight. Adrian Goldberg here with the Byline Times podcast discussing attack journalism. You don't get that at the Byline Times, I think it's fair to say. This has been the Byline Times podcast funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And do check out as well the Bylines app on your smartphone, opening up the world of our regional bylines as well. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Bethany. See you next time. Bye.